Hello, I'm Sam Clements, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by Tim Anderson, winner of MasterChef in 2011, owner of Nanban in Brixton, serving the most delicious Japanese, I guess, soul food is how you describe it, Tim. It's so delicious. I love going there. Thank you. And author of a number of cookbooks, including Nanban Cookbook, Japanesey, and the brand new book, Tokyo Stories, a Japanese cookbook, which I've got a copy in front of me, listeners. It looks so beautiful. It's shiny. It's, it's actually shiny. <laughs> it's really shiny. And you've got this amazing pink paper stock you can see uh, poking out from the cover. It's beautiful. Thanks for uh, popping by, Tim. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. I guess people will know you for your food, but yeah. I, I know you're a film fan as well. I am. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, a big film geek or anything. I don't know the technical side of films that well or anything like that, but I do love to watch movies i don't get to as much as i'd like to mm. with work and baby and all that but yeah i love films always have has films ever inspired any of your your dishes in your books or in your restaurant you know <laughs> it's a good question there are I, I can't say there are there are there have been things i've seen in movies that i thought that looks really good and then i'll go and kind of make them uh, the the ramen they make in ponyo it's just instant ramen with some really good toppings i've done that after watching that movie the thing I've always wanted to do is make a dish based on the rotten pineapple from Chungking Express. Wow. Which, if you haven't seen it, it's it's uh, one of the characters eats pineapple that's expired on the day his girlfriend dumped him and then vomits as a kind of like catharsis, like an emotional purge tied to the food. But I thought you could make a really good dish that's actually like pineapple with a bit of blue cheese and walnuts and it would taste kind of rotten but kind of delicious. So no, no, it's, it's hard to sort of to bring them into a restaurant, I guess, because movie food, it, it can be much more beautiful and more creative than mm. it can sort of for a normal restaurant to to produce every day absolutely i'd love to try it sometime though do you should do a, a, a day of specials or, or something yeah <laughs> i've always wanted to do a kind of edible cinema type thing the other thing that i thought would be really fun it's not a movie but adventure time the mm -hmm. cartoon show there's some really crazy stuff you could do based on that show especially because most of the characters are food they're actually candies and donuts and stuff like that yeah so i've always like had this idea in my head to do these kind of pop-ups or, or movie tie-in events but just need a venue and and time that's yeah, the other time. thing running the restaurant is <laughs> you're just sort of grinding the same food out every day we do specials and everything but it's hard to actually put something like that together but someday someday <laughs> yeah absolutely if nanban ever goes to the movies i will be there yeah for, that's, first that's, in that's line. what we can call it <laughs> And it is a real, it's a thrill to have you on, on the show today because my wife and I, who produces the show, we, we use Japanesey a lot. Great, we love thank that you. cookbook. Thank you very much. Uh, what really struck me about putting those things together on, you know, they're all on like one side of the page. Yeah. Is it tricky to sort of condense your process into just like a small amount of text and that ingredients list? Not for that book, because with Japanesey, it is all about the 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 side of Japanese cooking that is inherently simple. And that's a big side of Japanese cooking. There are types of Japanese food that have complicated processes and, and tricky techniques, and um, some of them have a lot of ingredients. Like the ramen that we make at Nanban, 
that is an incredibly complicated dish. There's there's 10 or 12 different elements in a bowl. Each element, uh, most of them we make ourselves, and those ones will have different ingredients and processes that go into them. So like, there's no recipes like that in Japanese because it's not fair to the dish and it's not fair to the home cook who's using the recipes. So it's more things like you make a good, like a sweet miso sauce, which is an easy sauce to make, keep it in the fridge because it lasts for a while. And then whenever you want Japanese food, all you have to do is cut open an aubergine fry it, slather that sauce on it, grill it till it caramelizes, and then rice salad miso soup, you have a Japanese meal. Or not. Or you can just have that aubergine with bread. Like, mm. the other thing about that book is, you know, Japanese food doesn't have to be served necessarily as part of a big Japanese meal. What's the difference with the, the new book? What can people look forward to uh, in Tokyo Stories? So Tokyo Stories is, it's actually kind of half cookbook, half travel book. So it's based on the food that you get in Tokyo, some of which are sort of strictly Tokyo local specialties. There's some really interesting dishes, like one I found called uh, Fukagawa Meshi, which is, uh, it's, it's a simple dish, but it's, it's just a lot of delicious clams on rice. <laughs> nice. But it's really, really great. It's like simple, hearty, umami, delicious seafood flavors served with miso soup. And that's a strictly kind of East Tokyo thing, like an old school Tokyo thing that you don't really see outside of Tokyo. So there's that. Completely opposite of that is you get regional dishes from around Japan that you can also get in Tokyo. So there's a, a little section on Okinawan food because there's a few Okinawan restaurants in Tokyo, which is great because it's hard to get to Okinawa, especially if you're just going to Japan for the first time. So you can get a taste of Japan within Tokyo without leaving Tokyo. There's international dishes, so there's a Neapolitan pizza recipe in here, oh, wow. because that's big in Japan, or in Tokyo. There's great pizza in Tokyo. And then there's convenience store food. There's a recipe for uh, Nikuman steamed Chinese-style pork buns. There's uh, cheese-stuffed fried chicken. There's different kinds of iced tea recipes, cocktails. And then you get a bit of Tokyo home cooking, um, which is really simple stuff you can do in a tiny kitchen, uh, and modernist cuisine, a bit of that as well, because Tokyo has it all. It's got... Japanese food has got non-Japanese food, it's got modern stuff, um, it's got traditional stuff, it's got very expensive stuff, and it's got very cheap stuff. So I wanted to kind of capture all that. And also, for most of the recipes, there's a little bit of info on where to go to get it in Tokyo. So, And the, I should say the photography is amazing. We went to Tokyo to shoot it, some by Nasma Rothaker, who got some great shots to capture the city. And the design is by Ebi Oetomo, who did Japanese as well. And she also like gave it this kind of cool retro pachinko parlor Japanese mm. vibe. So I'm really, really happy with it. It's a great book, Absolutely. if I, I may say so. <laughs> well, as, a, as a, I guess a bit more of an impartial person, I went on holiday to Tokyo last year and, and oh, this right. book is bringing back loads of memories. Great. Uh, so I can't wait to get stuck in. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so you're, you're uh, on the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest mm. to talk about movies and yes. we've asked you to choose a movie that's 90 Minutes or Less. I was just wondering, in general, when it comes to you choosing a movie, does runtime ever come into it? Is this something you normally consider? All the time. We have a 10-month-old baby she goes to bed at eight o'clock around then and then we have dinner and then after that we're gonna watch something on tv or a movie and but we're we know we're gonna be sleepy by 10 mm. <laughs> and probably asleep so we it's hard for us to choose movies to watch that we know will last the duration of like pretty much any scorsese movie is out yeah <laughs> it's gone. forever yeah until she's 18 <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we're, we're always, you know, watching the movies that are certainly under two hours. And if we can find movies that are like an hour and a half, then that's the one we usually go for because we know we'll get through it. So I gave you some homework. What film did you choose for the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest? I chose Tonari no Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro by Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. 
So on the back of the DVD, this is the synopsis, while their mother recovers from an illness, Satsuki and her little sister May, voiced in English by Dakota Fanning and Elle Fanning, <laughs> get away from it all in an idyllic rural retreat. Far from the bustle of the city, they discover a mysterious place of spirits and magic, and the friendship of the Totoro woodland creatures. Conceived as a family film devoid of conflict and suffused <laughs> with the carefree pleasures of the summertime, my neighbor Totoro sees Hayao Miyazaki create a parable of friendship, imagination, populated with unforgettable characters. That's quite a bland synopsis, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really convey just how beautiful and fun yeah. it is. Like, it's obviously a very uh, artful film and and if you took any one kind of background or or sell from from the movie it's a work of art itself but it's just it's a fun movie to watch mm. there's a lot of humor in it but then also like it i thought i thought this time when i watched it it was uh, i thought it was surprisingly emotional mm. there's there's a lot going on in the movie <laughs> absolutely more I, than i think i first appreciated when i watched it back in high school i guess and it's funny because um that they even say it was conceived to be devoid of conflict yeah because that's what a lot of the reviews say as well and i remember before i watched this movie i read roger ebert's review of it which is a really great review he said basically it's like it's not really about plot it doesn't really have any conflict it's more about a kind of situation and and a snapshot of this life that this family is leading and I kind of went along with that line of thinking. And it's interesting if it really was conceived that way, because I think it's totally wrong. I think there's actually <laughs> quite a lot of conflict in it. And the scene where Satsuki, where she realized that her mother might not be getting better, mm. that was heartbreaking. Like, I I cried. Like, And I, I've not cried in this movie before. And I, maybe it's because I have my own kid now or something, but... It's just, it's just awful watching that realization. Like, there's such a... That was really emotional for me. Absolutely. I think the cinematic trope of someone being in hospital uh, and not being allowed to leave the hospital is... Yeah. They're probably never going to leave the hospital, at least not in this movie. <laughs> right, yeah. So you go into the film thinking, I really hope she's get better, but yeah. you, you think she probably won't. And, and the film... The film sort of takes you through that. It's worth saying now, this will be a spoiler-filled chat. So right. if you've not seen the film, would recommend seeking it out. We like yeah. to get under the hood of the movie, so it's, it's good yeah. to be able to talk about everything. But this is a podcast. You can pause it, watch the movie, and come back. True. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I also realized I forgot that the mother's illness is not resolved. Mm. At the end of the movie, she's still in the hospital, and she seems fine, but you don't really know. Like... It's kind of left open-ended. It's a little bit... I wouldn't say it's a sad ending, but it's not really a happy ending either. No, I think it's definitely down to you, the audience, to sort of make up your, your mind. Well, the whole movie, I think, leaves a lot open to interpretation. Like, whether or not the spirit creatures, you know, the soot sprites, Totoro himself, the cat bus... And the, the slightly other subtle supernatural things that happen, like there's a big gust of wind that comes in the beginning mm. and blows the sticks that Satsuki's collecting up towards the camphor tree. And so there's, a, there's this mystery about the movie where you don't know if what's happening is real or not. And, and it's kind of, it's nice. It's, it's thought provoking that way that you can see the world differently, you know, both as a viewer of the movie and as a character in the movie. The film does a really good job of positioning you, the audience, sort of with the girls, with the young girls. And yeah. you sort of see the world through their eyes because a couple of, well, there's the, the granny character says, you know, oh, I, I used to be able to see the soot sprites, yeah. the soot gremlins, but I, I can't anymore. And, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, she, you don't know if she's humoring them or if genuinely she used to be able to see the stuff, exactly. but she can't anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because also, like, is it also that the kids are just seeing things in a different way? So... 
my, my wife, when we were watching it together, she pointed out that like the little Totoro that May first chases in the towards the beginning of the film, they could be just little rabbits mm. or, or just normal forest creatures. But when you're a kid, like everything is a little bit crazy and magical. Like we have a cat named Baloo at home. And we were amazed at how cat-like Totoro is, and a lot of the creatures are, more so than the cat bus. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, and how, to our 10-month-old girl, Tig, seeing our cat, it's just like, what even is that thing? Like, it's not a person, it's not a toy, it's just this kind of crazy, magical creature. So, and, and you know, when you're a little kid, everything is a bit more like that. Everything is a bit of a mystery, and everything is a, is new. So, you know, maybe Totoro, maybe the all the little cat bus and everything maybe they're just the way kids see things that we think are are normal and mundane like normal animals or normal buses i don't know there's a lot of ways you can interpret how the how the magic side of the film is presented so because the magic never happens when the adults are around right yeah so so yeah it could just be a good way to explain like totoro leaving on the cat bus in that famous scene at the bus stop yeah it's just before the dad shows up so oh dad totoro was here but he's got on the magic bus, right, so he's yeah. gone. <laughs> you can't see him. <laughs> One thing that really struck me when I was rewatching the film is how spiritual it is mm. and how actually overtly religious at times. Like there's, um, there's quite a bit of praying mm. in the movie and rituals. And even Totoro does a kind of ritualistic dance to grow the seeds that the girls get. And that's also... I don't want to say it's about like that religion is, is real, but it's almost about how like faith is real and how... There's a, a thread in other Miyazaki movies where I think that if you, how you interact with the world around you has repercussions mm. for you. So it, it usually is sort of in, in regards to nature. And in this movie, it's like if you kind of treat nature with respect if you, if you, and, and, and with love, whether it's a big tree, a big old tree, or the soot sprites, or the forest creatures, then they'll repay you in kind. If you contrast that with like Princess Mononoke or Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, it's the opposite kind of thing, but it's the same kind of retribution. Because in those movies, characters act negatively towards their environment and towards each other. And then they get comeuppance for it, basically. <laughs> so I think it was interesting, like, and I never thought about Totoro really having that kind of meaning before, I guess. And, and that connection to nature and that idea of karma, almost. And the way I think that... because. There's all this sort of magical stuff that happens. The kids are whisked away by the cat bus and they're able to deliver the ear of corn to the mother in the hospital via the cat bus and Totoro helps them out. Like you say, the, the adults never see it happen. And it's kind of like things do happen that are lucky and improbable and maybe that's just one way of, of interpreting that or explaining it. It's definitely something that's in a lot of Miyazaki films. The sort of he, it feels like he always wants to teach people a lesson. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a bit of a parable for you. This is a lesson I'm going to bestow upon you. Yeah. But it also feels it's such a nice lesson to get. You know, it the is. Way, yeah. The way it's presented, and it, and it is usually a wholesome message. Like I like how May believes that an ear of corn is going to get her mum better. Like you know, the, right. a natural thing, not man-made, no drugs, right? Just something purely nature. Like they've just picked fresh. Yeah. Is going to make her better. No, I didn't even think about that. And it's funny because I never thought of. Of this Miyazaki movie as being particularly moralistic more it's I think it's a lot more obvious in some of his later stuff especially like Spirited Away mm. which is I, I I always think about that movie as about gluttony mm -hmm. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> how you have the parents turning into pigs in the beginning and you have no face becoming terribly ill after eating everything in the bathhouse or maybe it's about greed I don't know that one's a bit more ambiguous 
but yeah, you're right. There is sort of there is always a there's a good and evil in in Miyazaki movies, but also there's that's always kind of complicated as well. This movie, I think, Totoro doesn't really have the evil side, mm-hmm. and I think that's why people don't think of it as having conflict. Yeah, because there's no villain, there's no there's no violence. The kids aren't really up against anything other than you know just reality <laughs> so you don't think of it as a moral movie but there is there is a moral logic to it yeah dad come here there's definitely something weird in this house that's great i've always wanted to live in a haunted house ever since i was a little boy ah! the two girls in the film are incredible who we see the movie through but the dad i think is yeah. the sort of mvp in the story he is yeah he's amazing he really keeps it together. <laughs> He's, he knows how to talk to his kids as well. Like he, he totally knows when to humor them and, and how to sort of use their imagination to his advantage. Yeah. Like at the beginning, when the girls first see the soot sprites, they come running back to him like, the house is haunted. And he's yeah. like, I've always wanted to live in a haunted yeah, house. That's brilliant. Like, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's that part of the movie is like maybe the least realistic part actually is how good of a dad he is and the mother and the whole dynamic. But that also ties in i think to the idea of just being kind and respectful of the world around you no matter who is in that world because it's not just the family that's impressively supportive and and loving it's the whole community how this this is a brand new family in this town they've just moved there but they're taken in by the other families by the by the grandma character especially as one of their own and really looked after and it's again it's that sort of give and take that kind of you know if 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 you look after the per- people around you, then it'll, it'll be repaid, basically, by by them or by Totoro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Later in the film, there's Kanto, the boy, yeah. who sort of doesn't really like them because they're girls. Yeah. Um, but he, he sort of reluctantly gives them his umbrella when it's raining yeah, and exactly. then runs away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an awkward boy thing to do. It is. <laughs> yeah. And then it's, it's so sad. The umbrella's full of holes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think just in those early scenes when you see the family together, they're doing a lot of family activities. Uh, they eat, they bathe, and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. There's um, one scene where Satsuke needs to make bento box to yeah. take to school. They have a box lunch day, which is a thing that happens in Japan. Yeah. Children, they don't do the canteen. They uh, People have to come make a bento box and yeah. learn about how nutritious food can be. As someone who works in food, what's your relationship with a bento box, Tim? I mean, a bento box is beautiful. The, the thing is, I have almost never made them. Once or twice, I've made them for myself or for the restaurant. But they, I used to buy them a lot in Japan because the ones you can buy in shops are really, really good. And they have, they're, they're, they're great because they're like a full Japanese meal, sort of mm. in microcosm. There's a lot of rice. The bento is usually half rice, I'd say. But then you get all kinds of different little preparations. You know, you could have a little bit of omelet. You could have some cooked chicken, simmered vegetables, pickles always. Um, and you just get this incredible variety out of even a garden variety bento box from a convenience store, which is why I kind of have never made them is because I feel like if you want to make a really good one, you have to actually make a uh, a big effort. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just easier to buy one. You can like if you have the stuff on hand, like in this book, Tokyo Stories, I say if you want to have bento, just make a bunch of stuff at the beginning of the week, mm. keeps in the fridge for four or five days, and then you can put it together however you like. But that that. That, and that's in a lot of Japanese movies generally is that making of the bento that's in from up on Poppy Hill or is that breakfast and anyway I love scenes like that because they make it look so effortless yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that if you come up in a Japanese family where you've been doing that for years and you have all those ingredients to hand and and you have the skills to make things then it can be quite 
I, want, I don't want to say easy because there's, there's still an effort that goes into it, but you can have it as part of your routine, but you kind of have to be set up for it. And what, what actually really struck me about that scene was that they had May, who's four years old, grilling fish yes. on a chichirin, on an open charcoal grill. And it's like, that's amazing. Like, that's the kind of culture that you kind of have to have to be making bento. You have to be comfortable with little children cooking over open flames, basically. Because <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a team effort as well. Like, it wasn't just Satsuki who was making it. Well, her father wasn't really doing anything, but... <laughs> Yeah, there's, and it, I also like that scene, and any scene like that in uh, anime, Japanese movies. Oh, have you seen uh, Shoplifters? Yeah, I love Shoplifters. It's great, it's a really a beautiful new film. New Hirokazu Koreeda film. Yeah, there's a lot of food. I mean, it's, that movie's kind of about food in a way. But in a lot of Japanese movies, that scene, or scenes, those scenes where they're preparing food for their family, really, I think, it has to be in there to sort of show that this is a loving functional family you know what i mean it's quite hard to you know make this film in the first place and to like photograph it but to animate it and to draw it which ghibli does in every one of their films there's always something delicious yeah so the ramen in ponyo this instant ramen that they put toppings on and i draw ramen myself because when i'm making a new ramen dish i'll draw it on a a piece of paper it's hard to draw ramen and make it look delicious because it's quite intricate Uh, but in ponyo they have these little droplets of fat that kind of sparkle on the surface and and there's steam coming off it and and the, the the pork that's on it looks really pink and lovely and thinly sliced and yeah they they just make it look delicious more so i think than in a film like ratatouille where the film the, the food looks good but somehow it looks less real yeah you know even <laughs> though there's this incredible technology behind making it look real and delicious somehow the food in a miyazaki which is clearly hand-drawn and, and fake is more appealing i don't i don't know what it is maybe it's like a heightened exaggeration of what good food should be totoro is that what your name is totoro yep that's your name all right so as well as the, the the amazing family, we are the film is full of these fantastic creatures, and I think a lot of people remember the sort of the large Totoro, the the, the sort of yeah. one that's the, all the toys have been made of. But there is this sort of small family of, of Totoro, and there's a small one and a medium one and a large one. Yep. <laughs> Do you have a favorite character in this film? A favorite fantastic character? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, um, so there's Cat Bus, there's a big Totoro, there's a little Totoros. The the entrance of the little Totoros at the or there's just one at the beginning when when May finds him. That's very charming. Like, that's the one that I would probably go after as well. (laughs) But there's the scene immediately following that where May finds the big Totoro and takes a nap on his belly. Mm. That's just like, that's that's a dream scenario for me. So I got to say Totoro. Catbus is cool, but also a little bit scary. <laughs> I think Catbus is incredibly scary. Both the big Totoro and Catbus have the same smile. It's like really, yeah. it's quite sinister. <laughs> so this is also something I realized about the movie is that it could tip into being quite scary very easily. Like there are scenes of Totoro with his big open mouth and his giant teeth that are a little bit grotesque. And But I think that also comes back to the idea of like, 
there's a, there's a lot of fear in the movie. The soot sprites at the beginning, they're kind of like the children are very scared to go up to the attic and confront them or find them. But then what happens is there's always an overcoming of that fear, which is like a catharsis and a joy even. Mm. So I think that that's also like when May first finds a big Totoro or when, when Totoro stands next to them at the bus stop and Satsuki sees him, it's a little bit like off-putting. It's a little bit like you don't know what this thing's going to do. Mm. But then the children are benign and kind to him. And so... When that happens and he responds that the same way, you know there's sort of nothing to fear. It's it's and yeah, this is the other thing about having there be no conflict. Like even though there's scary moments in the film, they're not resolved by like confrontation. No. They're resolved the complete opposite way. They're resolved by people being nice to each other, which is lovely. I think it's a good lesson again, like thinking of lessons for for children and for adults watching this film. You know, actually talk to each other, engage with the things that scare you. Yeah, don't be scared. Yeah, and and just treat everything as as something that could be your friend mm. rather than an enemy. You know, that scene at the bus stop, quite a famous scene for the artwork. Um, Totoro emerges, the large Totoro with a leaf on his head, yeah. keep him dry, yeah. and Satsuki gives him the umbrella. I think yeah. she's saving it for her dad, and he's never seen one of these before but right. he opens it with his like little claws yeah, he's and then like he's scared yeah, he, he, is, he yeah. opens it and then they do that animation thing where his eyes get really big Yeah, yeah and yeah. it's it's amazing like the little girl has scared the giant Totoro so right. she's sort of overcome it you know he's afraid of things too but that's kind of a nice thing yeah but then the scary cat bus arrives right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to work out the dynamics of like so cat bus has got this amazing the whole film's got this great score by Joe Hisashi but mm. cat bus I think has got my favourite music in the film and it's quite frantic and he yeah. bounces along and it's just like when it couldn't get any weirder a cat the size of a bus shows up right with mice that have red glowing eyes that are the lights the headlights and the cat bus has balls oh i, have not I noticed didn't notice that yeah <laughs> and they only show the cat bus's balls i think in one or two scenes when they when they show it from looking up from the ground as it soars overhead and they're they're little but they're there hi sorry i'm late drive on my train was delayed so i had to wait for the next bus were you worried came back, Dad. I saw him. We saw a cat bus, too. What? It was huge! With eyes like this. It was great! It was great! <laughs> I saw him! I saw him! I saw him, too! <laughs> Something I think it'd be remiss of us to, to finish on Totoro without talking about Joe Hisashi's score. Yeah. He is basically the, the sort of sound of Ghibli. He's, he's right. intrinsically linked with so many of them, all of Miyazaki's. And the Totoro music is... It's great. It like, is great. It, I didn't, again, I, I've seen this film so many times, watching it for this, sort of really picking out certain bits of the music, and it's it's kind of like unfashionable. It's sort of like this jazz rock orchestra sort of thing. Yeah. But it works with this like kind of quirky movie. There's this part of the score that usually accompanies the more spiritual scenes, like when they, when they talk about the big tree in particular. Mm. And it sounds like kind of traditional Japanese music, but it's done with a bit of synth mm. and like 80s styling. And at first it's like, I don't know, this is a bit weird. But actually it, it, it really works and it's quite, it's simple, but it's affecting as well. And also it, that also reminded me, that bit of the score reminded me a lot of Princess Mononoke, which has the same kind of melodies, but that score is a lot more sweeping and grand mm. and then mythological, I guess. Whereas the one in Totoro is more almost childlike I guess it's a little more playful and I think yeah. its construction was more playful as well you're right when it gets to Spirited Away and Mononoke it's huge like orchestras yeah. but with this I think they're both both Miyazaki and, and Hisashi are sort of working each other out still and, and I yeah, think yeah. the story is that they basically just had like jam sessions that Miyazaki would go to and observe and Hisashi and his band would just sort of try different things which <laughs> I think is why the score is a little bit it's a bit of everything it's interesting you mentioned the synth as well because the first score that he did for the 
them was for Laputa, Castle in the Sky. Right. I think that's all synth. And in this, you start right. to see some instruments come in and, and a little bit of jazz. Yeah. See, now I want, I want to rewatch all of them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of what the music from uh, Nausicaa was like. Because Nausicaa came out just a few years before yeah. Totoro. Which it's a pretty different movie, but yeah, there is this common thread even even in the music throughout different Ghibli movies. People often say they sort of compare to John Williams Steven Spielberg collaboration with Hisashi and Miyazaki. Yeah, and I think you see that as well. I think they understand each other and they've grown as as creators together in this. The, the unique thing about Totoro, it doesn't happen in every Ghibli film, although they do it in some. Is that you've got songs at the beginning mm. and songs at the end. So the sort of Totoro stroll at the beginning, yeah, which is all about hey, let's go, we're going yeah, on yeah, an yeah. adventure, <laughs> and then the song at the end, which kind of recaps the story and sort of gives a bit of a hint as to what might happen yeah what do you remember of those songs at the beginning and end of Totoro well <laughs> so the first time I watched it that song uh, the Totoro Totoro that, that got really stuck in my head like forever it's an earworm <laughs> <laughs> so for a long time that's like the only kind of music I remember from that movie and actually it was one of the only things I remember because I watched it in high school and I didn't watch it again for years but that song stuck with me yeah <laughs> what struck me this time was how I put the DVD on and I had taken the batteries out of my DVD player remote so that Tig could play with it and like suck on it and stuff because um, <laughs> he likes remotes. But <laughs> And then uh, as soon as the English dubbed version, because I, I couldn't change the language settings, so as soon as the English dubbed version of that song came on, I just thought, nope, I can't. I can't do it. I have to change it. So I put the batteries back in, switched over to the Japanese with uh, subtitles. And it was just so much better. Like, because... I don't know, th- those lyrics, they work in Japanese. There's something about them. They're so simple. Like, because mm. they literally are like, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. I'm having such a good time. Like, and when you hear them sung out loud in English, they just sound wrong. But in Japanese, I don't know, they're they're more fun for some reason. I think the words are, themselves are more sort of beautiful when sung. Because like, yes. I noticed, I, did, I was a bit of a nerd when I watched it for, the, for recording this. I watched the film in Japanese, but then I went back and I watched certain scenes in English. And I wanted to just see how the dialogue had changed. Because yeah. I sort of noticed that. You, often you have to do that because the sentences won't make sense right. if you do a straight translation. But at the beginning song, I think they talk about, it's the, hey, let's go, hey, let's go. And then in the English version, they list some of the animals that you'll see, foxes and badgers. Yeah. And in the Japanese one, it's wolves and foxes. So at some point when they were translating it, they were like, no, we're not going to translate the wolves line. It's going to be badgers. That's going to be more cuddly for the kids. You know, what's interesting. They, that just reminded me of another scene though. Uh, Another kind of religious scene that also ties in with what I was saying about how all animals are kind of spiritual, especially when you're a little kid or kind of magical. Mm. There's a scene they come across an old shrine and there's little fox statues in them. They're they're either foxes or wolves um, and they have little red scarves on them. And that's a really common thing to see in Shinto temples in Japan because foxes and wolves were considered kind of spiritual creatures. So it's like, you know, adults know that these things are magical too, somehow. Or mm. like or like people, you know, hundreds of years ago thought that the forests and the animals in them were also like quite magical and, and weird and interesting. But we just see them differently. So yeah, I think that the lyrics, they're probably maybe more pointing towards the danger like the slightly scary side of the forest and the slightly Mm. scary side of totoro and the cat bus and all that as well where they didn't quite get it in the english version it's almost like a lions tigers and bears oh my type thing yeah like that's scary but it's also fun like we're having an adventure the way you say it is fun (laughs) 
I think it's a really good primer for getting kids especially excited because it's like a TV show. You know, you're about to watch a feature film. Yeah. You you get to see, it's got that very simple animation at the song, nice theme tune. And I think it's sort of is a good way to draw kids in. Yeah. I think when you're an adult, it's a bit more of a novelty and it does sort of, it's maybe a bit jarring right. before you see a feature film. But I think kids, because you're right, they come out of it humming it, you know, and yeah. that, that's what you take away from the film. The film is that song. <laughs> yeah, totally. I always wonder about Ghibli movies, like when is an appropriate age to show them to kids? The, I mean, different ones, different ages, obviously, but uh, even something like Totoro, you might be kind of scared of if you're a really little kid. Spirited Away, terrifying. Yeah. And then you get things like Prince of Mononoke or Nausicaa, where people die. And like, you know, in Prince of Mononoke, somebody gets their head chopped off and their True. arms chopped off. It's quite off. grim, actually. It is grim. Yeah. And you kind of like, when you're a teenager or an adult and you watch it, you're like, it's no big deal. But like, it's uh, there's some serious, scary stuff in there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, that's you. an excellent choice. It's quite uh, an iconic film to feature in our lineup at the yeah. festival. Very excited to show it to our crowds. <laughs> <laughs> in this cinema sort of environment where, where we're going to be hosting this festival, how would you how would you sort of heighten this, this screening for the audience? Would you put on anything special for the crowds who come in to see this film on the big screen? Well, I think, so the movie's set in summer, and I didn't notice before this last time I watched it, there's a lot of very seasonal markers in the movie. There's uh, hydrangeas. Uh, there's planting of rice and then later harvesting or almost harvesting of rice and corn. And there's cicadas. And I don't know if we even have cicadas in the UK, but there's this buzzing, this drone that you get in late summer, like August, September in Japan, all over the place. It doesn't matter if you're in a big city or in the countryside, there's just cicadas everywhere. They make this incredible loud buzzing noise, which at first when I went to Japan, it really bothered me. <laughs> but I got used to it and I got to kind of appreciate it as just a almost like a nostalgic thing like ah the cicadas are back it's late summer again <laughs> so getting that not necessarily the cicadas but having it be shown in the summer I think that's important or in a very summery setting outdoor I think like an outdoor cinema thing would be great it's tricky in this country because you never know when the weather's going to be actually it's a bit enough. risky <laughs> yeah but I think it'd be nice to have it in a park where you're sort of surrounded by nature there's lovely like butterflies and greenery in the film so doing that i think would really set the the mood set the stage really well i would love to have a and have it be open to families like and have it be i i i don't like outdoor cinema very much because i don't like to sit on the ground (laughs) very much but now that i have a, a daughter and um i'm more appreciative of people with kids i think it'd be fun to have it be so that the kids can kind of run around play the film very loudly so that if you really want to watch it like you're not distracted but yeah have it be a real family thing because it is a great family movie like it, it is for all ages absolutely it really doesn't matter how old you are you can enjoy it on all different kinds of levels but i'd also like to have a q a with miyazaki and just get a bit more i'm sure there's interviews i can read but i'd love to hear what he has to say about the themes of the film especially with regards to sort of the spiritual side of it and what exactly he was trying to get across you know because we can come up with our own theories all day long and our own interpretations but to hear what he has to say and why he did certain things in the movie would be really really interesting and then finally i think that the greatest scene for me in that film is when may takes a nap on totoro mm-hmm. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants a giant Totoro to sleep on. So if we could somehow have giant Totoro beds where people can take turns curling up for a little nap, 
that would be ideal. That sounds perfect. I'm we're, we're, the 90 minutes or less film fest. Happy to fund all of those endeavors. Great. We'll make it happen. I think as uh, as sort of producer of the festival, I would maybe request that we have some bentos for people yep. during the movie. And uh, and also, I don't know if you noticed, there's actually a sequel to My Neighbor Totoro called May and the Cat May and the Kitten. Oh, that they show at the museum. They show in the yeah. Makata in, in the museum, and it's I've I've been and annoyingly, I mean, the nice thing is. It's it's pure. It's a classic Ghibli thing. Mm. They've made all of these movies, most of them directed by Miyazaki, that only play in the theatre in the museum. They're all yeah. these lovely shorts. And I saw one by Miyazaki about a whale and a classroom, and mm. it's beautiful. I really wanted to see May and the Kitten Bus because it's, right. such, it's a sequel to such a beloved movie. And you can only see it there. It's 13 minutes long. Joe Hisashi's done the music again. It follows on. The, the cat bus has children. Yeah. <laughs> and May, May, May becomes entwined with this kitten bus. It's because you can only see it at the museum. I'd, I'd love if, if Miyazaki comes, if he could just bring a reel yeah. a film to show the audience the kitten bus film as well. I'm trying to remember because I went to that museum and I can't remember which film I saw, actually. It wasn't that one. It was one of the other ones. But yeah, no, that's a good shout. Like a that, legend. that would make this a legendary screen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us today, Tim. Thank you. Really My appreciate pleasure. this and can't wait to read Tokyo Stories as Great. well. Great. Thank you so much. On a, on a social media note, if people want to hear more about what you're up to, where can people find you? I'm at Chef Tim Anderson on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And the restaurant is Nanban London, N-A-N-B-A-N London, all three sites as well. Fantastic. I do follow your Instagram, and it makes me very hungry. <laughs> uh, so follow follow with care, listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you like the show, please do subscribe. Rate the show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. All of that stuff really helps us. We're now also available on Spotify. And you can contact us on at 90minfilmfest on Twitter and Instagram. The show was produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. The show is edited by Luke Smith. And our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. See you then. Goodbye! Goodbye!